0: Hid it I nigh nigh, and I nigh, and I. Hi, I yah, 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 Shalom, shalom, friends. Can na, hear me okay? na? na, Great. Great. All right. Um, Wonderful to be with you all today for Pearls of Kindness, class 21 on Savlanut, which also means tolerance, but that's not the focus of today. Um, Savlanut can mean tolerance, but in this case, it means patience, being patient with others. None of us, um, of course, are exempt from uh, uh, our work on all of these. We all have different midotes that will be easier or harder for us. But we can all grow, especially this month of Elul with Rosh Hashanah being just on Sunday night. So it's a great time to think of this midah together. Let's start with a poll. Let's start with a poll together. How patient are you? Option one, patience is one of my greatest virtues. Option two, like most, I struggle with always being patient. Number three, I'm incredibly impatient. Always have been, always will be. Let's see what you got. Give you three seconds. There we go. All right, 13%, one of my greatest virtues. 13%, always incredibly impatient. But most folks, 75%. Like most, I struggle with always being patient. Okay, beautiful, got it. Here we go, friends. Watch any young child and they just can't wait for their food, for their toy, or for their birthday party. True, some of us may be more naturally inclined to be patient but nonetheless, all of us need to work on cultivating that patience. The Talmudic rabbis teach a lesson in how anyone in an educational role needs extraordinary patience. Our rabbis learned what was the procedure of the instruction in the oral law, right? Just a reminder, what makes Judaism so unique, especially in relation to Christianity, is our deep commitment to this oral law process of kind of how instruction is passed down and evolves. Moses learned from the mouth of the omnipotent. Then Aaron entered and Moshe taught him his lesson. Aaron then moved aside and sat down on Moshe's left. Thereupon Aaron's sons entered and Moshe taught them their lesson. His sons then moved aside. Eleazar taking his seat on Moshe's right and Itamar on Aaron's left. Rav Yehuda stated Aaron was always on Moshe's right. Interesting. Thereupon the elders entered, and Moshe taught them their lesson. And when the elders moved aside, all the people entered, and Moshe taught them their lesson. It thus followed that Aaron heard the lesson four times. His sons heard it three times, the elders twice, and all the people once. At this stage, Moshe departed, and Aaron taught them his lesson. Then Aaron departed, and his sons taught them their lesson. His sons then departed, and the elders taught them their lesson. It thus followed that everyone heard the lesson four times. From here, Rav Eliezer inferred, it is a person's duty to teach the lesson to their pupil four times. For this is arrived at a our Aron, who learned from Moshe, who himself learned it from the omnipotent, had to learn his lesson four times. How much more so an ordinary people who learns from an ordinary teacher, right? This idea that we can't expect to teach something once or twice and expect someone to understand it um, multiple, multiple times does one need to hear? I think in the world of marketing, they say someone needs to have eight touches on, with a mar, with a marketing um, um, strategy before it actually is effective. So here, where uh, the rabbis think only four times. Um, for um, those of excellence and and more times for those who, um, you know, may have kind of average learning abilities. To hammer home the point, the rabbis go even further. Yet we find that Rav Prada had a student with whom he reviewed each lesson 400 times. As a reward for this, 400 extra years were allotted to his life. And everyone in his generation was guaranteed a place in the world to come. so that's kind of interesting rabbinic uh, insight. Um, but 400 times, I mean, it's hard to imagine repeating something five times. Sometimes we're we're very impatient with others. We're like, I've told you this already. Why do I have to repeat it? You know, as if saying it once is enough. Um, or haven't I told you this three times? We can remember Rav Preda, who says um, 400 times he taught the student. Right. And so a lot to think about there. We learned that God is the ultimate model of one who is slow to anger and compassionate and gracious with patience. If you have been reciting Slichot, um, or if you will be attending Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur services, we know that we this is one of the main virtues we celebrate, God being compassionate and slow to anger um, and gracious with patience. Yes, uh, yes, I heard you the first time. Right, also impatient as a listener. Great point, Sarah, yeah. That sometimes we're impatient as a teacher or as a speaker, but also impatient as a listener. Right, great. So the rabbis taught over here, there were 10 generations from Adam to Noah. This shows how great was God's patience for every one of those generations provoked God continually until God brought upon them the waters of the flood. Right? Which is to say, like, it wasn't like, oh... Everything was great, and last minute, God brought the flood. Rather, enormous amounts of patients were like, "Oh, the world is getting evil. The world is getting corrupt. There's so much violence and um, and abuse." And yet, I, I'm I'm going to be patient and be patient until kind of a, a kind of a last straw. So God is willing to be insulted and not lash out until God feels there's no alternative. Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, known as the Ramak, writes. This, this attribute refers to the Holy One, be blessed, um, as a tolerant king who bears insult in a manner being beyond human understanding. Without doubt, nothing is hidden from God's view. In addition, there is not a moment that a person is not nourished and sustained by virtue of the divine power bestowed upon them. Right? That We know that in Jewish thought, there's those who believe, that God created the world and stepped back to some degree, um, bracketing some rare mi- miracles. And there's those who believe every single beat of a heartbeat is is uh, is God's will. Every single um, rise of sunrise is not nature as we come to think it is, but is um, is is God's uh, God's will. Uh, D- D- um, David Hume writes a bit about the sunrise. Um, and, uh, in, in, you know, in regards to skepticism and how we just uh, assume it will rise every, every day. But why should we necessarily assume that? Anyways, the remark continues. Thus, no person ever sins against God without God at that very moment bestowing abundant vitality upon them, giving them the power to move their limbs. Yet, even though a person uses this very vitality to transgress, God does not withhold it from them. Rather, the Holy One be blessed, refers this, suffers this insult and continues to enable their limbs to move. Even at the very moment that a person uses the power for transgression, sin and infuriating deeds, the Holy One bears them impatiently, bears them patiently. This, then, is a virtue that people should emulate, namely tolerance. Even when we are insulted to the degree mentioned above, we should not withdraw our our benevolence from those upon whom it's bestowed upon, and so we learn here. Let's bracket the theological point around what we, how we think God intervenes in the world. Nonetheless, this idea—I um, mean, one of the great projects of theology is raising the moral bar. The more perfect God is, and if we have an imperative to emulate the divine, that raises the moral bar for what we are ultimately to emulate. So, however we believe God emulate uh, you know, acts in the world, um, this spiritual uh, practice. of of understanding that God could destroy evil people at any moment and those who make horrible mistakes at any moment um, and does not ought to inspire us also to think about how we're more gentle with people who slight us and who wrong us. And um, unfortunately, most of us are very easily offended. I am so offended, right? This person ignored me. This person didn't you know, wish me healing after my surgery. This person forgot my birthday. You know, this person, you know, said something rude, you know, um, and we just write them off forever, (laughs) forever, right? And and we learn how much spiritual work we have to emulate the divine here. It is instructive to note that the word Savlanut shares the same Hebrew root as the word Sevel, which means suffering or affliction, right? Being patient means suffering. The trait of Savlanut then in its fullest manifestation demands more than just being patient with others. It requires taking the time to discern what is troubling them, what is holding them back, and how they would like to be helped, if at all, before acting. Indeed, the Torah informs us that prior to Moshe striking the Egyptian, he took notice of, of their Israelites' affliction. It seems that Moshe only discerned the proper course of action, killing the Egyptian, after internalizing just how deeply the Jews were suffering. The other way to connect this is um, that we are suffering the the gray area. We are suffering the waiting. We are suffering the um, the mistreatment. So let me give examples there, right? Um, Perhaps we're being patient To wait our cancer scan results. And we're really suffering while we're waiting for those cancer scan results. Um, But being patient means to kind of sit and hold on to that suffering, right? Perhaps we're suffering because we're sitting in a gray area of tolerance, right? That we are having to be in relationship with people who we find really distasteful. Um, Perhaps we're suffering because a child is, you know, mistreating us. They're not being respectful to us as a student in our class or as our child or grandchild, but we're not, we don't want to rebuke them. Um, We want to just show love and grace, but we continue to suffer by being patiently present to them. Um, Those are just a few examples of so many of how the word patient in Hebrew is deeply tied to this idea of suffering. The other idea I shared was how Moshe saw the suffering of the Israelites um, and yet was... Um, kind of, you know, exhibited this kind of patience of of discerning the proper strategy, right? That's another thing, right? Sometimes we just want to lash out or act quickly. And yet we need to be more strategic in our social change work rather than just raging. And there's a suffering involved with waiting and being strategic because it's cathartic to scream. It's cathartic to just say whatever you want to say to whoever you want to say, but sometimes you can't do that, right? (laughs) Sometimes you got to suffer holding in your feelings and expressions, and sometimes you don't, right? Um, But there's a suffering in being patient to be strategic. Okay, say for Mishle, the book of Proverbs reminds us that patience is not simply a kindness we should display towards others, but that we will ourselves make better decisions if we are patient. The patient person shows much good sense, it says, but the quick-tempered one displays folly at its height. Consider also how shortcuts in our interactions with others might actually not get us where we want to go. It says over here, Rav Yehoshua ben Hananiah remarked, no one has ever had the better of me, except a woman, a little boy, and a little girl. All right, well, that's kind of offensive, Rav Yehoshua, but we understood and understand that all men then, and some men today still talk like that, that you'd be embarrassed as a boy for a girl to beat you in the sport. Um, Whatever the case is, as as you know, he's explaining here. What was the incident with the little boy? I was once on a journey when I noticed a little boy sitting at a crossroad. By what road? I asked him. Do we go to the town? This one, he replied, is short but long, and that one is long but short. I proceeded along the short but long road. When I approached the town, I discovered that it was hedged in by gardens and orchards. Turning back, I said to him, "My son, did you not tell me that this road was short?" And he replied, did I not also tell you, but long? I kissed him on his head and said to him, happier you, Israel, all of you are wise, both young and old. By the way, I unfairly critique Ravi Hoshua. He wasn't actually saying something critical of those populations. Um, So forgive me for that, Ravi Hoshua, Ben Chalania. Uh, He said, no one has ever had the better of me except a woman, a little boy and a little girl. He actually was saying that I generally win arguments. I'm correct but there was a woman, a little boy and a little girl who, who actually um, taught me something I didn't know already. So, uh, so forgive me for ac- accusing him of being um, offensive. So anyways, so here he teaches us around this idea of the long but short path and the short but long path. The Jewish people needed to go the long way to Israel, 40 years in the desert. But God was instructing that the long path was the way needed to arrive properly and prepared. It was the short path, specifically regarding Torah itself The Tanya teaches, based on the verse, for it is exceedingly near to you in your mouth and in your heart. To do it, this is written, to explain clearly how it is exceedingly near in a long and short way, with the help of God be blessed. You can imagine someone who rushes into a marriage, taking the short path, but in fact, it's a long path um, towards, you know, something um, uh, unpleasant or someone who quickly jumps into a career because they want that, that certainty. They don't want to be patient to actually find themselves. And it's actually a long path than actually finding who they actually want to be. Sometimes we have to take the long road to get to take the short path. It doesn't just take age and experience to be wise. Rather, it takes work and patience to achieve wisdom. The Talmud teaches over here in Megillah. Rav Yitzchak said, if a person tells you I have toiled and i have not found don't believe them they say ah i searched i searched everywhere but i didn't find but if they say i have not i have not toiled and i have found also don't believe them but if they say i have toiled and i have found believe them a big part of the wisdom of patience is knowing what's in our control where we must push at times and what is not in our control where we must surrender at times the famous serenity prayer, which we're all familiar with, famously teaches, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Rabbi Menachem Mendel Leffend made a similar point. Woe to the pampered one who has never been trained to be patient. Either today or in the future, they are destined to sip from the cup of affliction. When something happens to you and you did not have the power to control it, do not aggravate the situation further through wasted anxiety or grief. Um, one of the things I've noticed is that those who are, are, are ill and bedridden, um, very different people and how they've, they've practice patience can handle illness. So too with the dying, um, how people have practiced patience and how they relate to dying because we tend to die the way we've lived. And we tend to be sick the way we've lived. Um, sometimes it's a whole new person, but generally um, it reflects the kind of, it, it just amplifies kind of the traits that we've lived with. Um, and being sick and having to go through a healing process requires an enormous amount of patience, of course, as does a dying process. Of Each of us is tempted to make rash or poor decisions. God said to Cain, sin crouches at the door. Its urge is toward you, yet you can be its master." If we don't pause with patience, we can make quick, poor decisions based on temptations. Viktor Frankl reminds us of how we can take control of our lives through our freedom, one moment at a time. He says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Friends, if we wish to be more reflective and more intentional, we will need to bear the burden of our emotions, we will sometimes need to suffer through waiting instead of rushing. In activism, the work requires a very calculated and sensitive balance between patience and alacrity. On the one hand, we must have the patience for teaching and engaging the apathetic and the uninformed. On the other hand, one must also have the alacrity to respond to crises and injustices at the most crucial time. Most often the precise timing that necessitates Immediate action precedes the completion of the essential education and mobilization of the public. They're not ready for us. This is one of the reasons why the uninformed segments of the public at times view the activists as radical. One must have the courage to act in the name of shalom, of peace, and sedek, justice, while maintaining patience and respect for more passive critics from one's own constituency. This sablanut, this patience, is required for one who believes deeply enough in their convictions and also cares enough about his or her students and constituents joining to pursue justice for social change. Both Pinchas in Numbers and Moshe in Exodus serve as our quintessential Jewish models of kinah, zealotry, and zrizut, alacrity. Moshe's core identity and community were transformed by his courageous decision to protect the abused. Similarly, the way that Avraham greeted his guests teaches us that one must develop the emotional intelligence to be in touch with another's needs to the point that one can indeed respond to situations that demand immediate and urgent responses with care. My uh, my, chavrutah was late yesterday, uh, very late to our, our, our learning session, because he, um, he, he he saw two elderly uh, women bump each other and fall and wanted to take them to the hospital and be with them. And he talked about, he shared with me just kind of how quickly he responded to it in that sense. Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian writer famously noted that the two most powerful warriors are patience and time. There's a time for Savlanut and a time for Zrizut. Balancing these two warrior traits requires self-awareness courage, partnership, and sensitivity. May we develop this necessary balance in order to lead and create social change. But we must be patient with ourselves, our family members, our students, and our constituents. We must also live with urgency at the same time. Through experience, wisdom, and partnership, we can all learn which trait is required at which time. Okay, dear friends, that is um, an opening to our conversation about how we can cultivate patience in our lives. I would love to hear from you. Yes, hi, Lauren, and then Eileen.
1: So patience is something I've been working on for quite a while. And living in Israel among the impatient made me more aware of how important, yes, true, Eileen, um, how important patience is. So a few things that helped me was meditation, um, so, because it slows you down, even if you're not meditating at the moment. I haven't driven in years. I live near the subway. So not driving is great. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another good thing. And like you said, that space in between, which is something I have to always remember because I tend to be reactive, but, but to stop and think and expand that space in between before you say write, do anything really really helps so yeah that's how it's helped me everybody has their own way
0: great great thank you lauren that meditation point is really helpful and the driving point and that space in between by the way um, someone um it would it would be great if someone um um it, it would be great if someone uh knew the answer to this but um i'm I'm curious why a um, hospital patient or a doctor's office patient is called a patient. Um, I mean, it seems pretty clear that you just have to have enormous amounts of patients to go through a healing process, to wait in offices to work with you know, therapy therapy, but there there might be another reason why someone's called a patient. If anyone knows, please share with us. But yeah, good, thank you, Lauren. and hi, Eileen.
2: Probably, they should be called impatience. I spent the summer with my grandchildren, which is a study in how to become more patient. And what I noticed is at my age, when I see my grandkids acting up, it's normal, it's healthy. I do not yell, I do not swear, I do not get upset. I just go into the space and maybe I put my arms around them but I talk slowly and softer and try to understand what the frustration is. In contrast to my daughter who has not learned patience.
0: Yep, yeah, great great. Awesome. Thank you. Yes. Sometimes a grandparent um, in the presence of their child parenting um, can notice these things. And um, uh, we've all been there. And, oh, well, not, I guess we haven't all been there, but we've been, um, maybe many of us have been on one side of that or experienced that in some sense. And, um, and sometimes some of, those, some of those tensions that emerge there as well. And I want to encourage us um, when we experience our impatience, not to hate that side of us, and condemn it, and fight it, and break it. But actually, find that little friend in you. Maybe, maybe take your face and make a little face of your face, and have that person inside of you, and um, who's who's you're talking impatience to you, and hold them, and be like, "Hey, friend, it's great to see you today, my little um, schmuly impatient friend." Obviously, you obviously fill in the blank with your own name, not my name, (laughs) Um, you know, and talk to them and say, I see what you're doing. You're trying to help me. You're telling me not to be late. You're telling me I have many moral priorities and I need to fulfill them all. You're telling them that change is urgent, right? You're actually trying to tell me something good. I shouldn't be patient because things matter. And if things matter, we want to get some stuff done. We don't have the privilege to just be patient all the time. And I wanna befriend you, and then I wanna quiet your voice a little bit because this is a moment I need to be moving a little bit more slowly in the world. So maybe that can be helpful to folks also. Oh, Eddie shared the etymology here. The word patient originally meant the one who suffers. Oh good, not only in Hebrew, but also in the English language. The English noun comes from the Latin word patiens, the present participle of the, of the uh, definite verb patior, meaning I am suffering which is akin to the Greek verb, pashkane, to suffer, and it's cognate uh, noun of pathos. Okay, well, pathos means a lot more than that. Um, Yeah, it means a lot more than that. But in any case, that is very interesting that all these languages um, have that connection also, in addition to Hebrew, of suffering and and patient. Yes, hi, I think Sarah
3: was before me. Sarah?
0: Sarah, was your hand up? I missed that. Sarah, no I, I I was
4: pretty much going to mention that you know the patient came from suffering and that um, I was going to echo Lauren's point about presence because everything that you've said in this whole presentation was about presence for me and the importance of our being able to be present in the moment and, Um, And then there was the question that I raised in the chat of how much of our suffering comes from the stories we're telling ourselves. And you just offered a new one for people to tell ourselves, which is, this is important. So what is it that is important to me in this moment? And what's the message? And then inviting your own presence to that question itself to be able to move forward. So um, I'm, I was just echoing, so I put my hand down.
0: Great. Thanks. Oh, good. Thank you, Sarah. Very nice. Very cool. Awesome. Thank you. Hi, Aglaia.
3: Okay. Hi. All right. It depends on how, yeah. If I sound bitter when I say this, um, forgive me. Okay. But because um, I still am a little bit though. But long story short, I never thought of myself as a patient person. But then one time I realized something. So a Muslim friend of mine had actually told me that he thought I had the patience of Job, and I was like, are you crazy? Okay, I almost said, are you crazy? All right, you must be crazy. Who are you talking about? But then I realized something. Okay, first of all, you brought up Leo Tolstoy, and I am one of the people who is crazy enough to read War and Peace like every single word, all right? So that, required, that actually did tax my patience, though, but it did require patience. But even more so, the more interesting thing that happened was, well, grad school, and talking about the, um, the, uh, the road that is short but long, so I started grad school when I was 21, which was a really huge mistake because then I ended up going the long way. I had an extra year's worth of coursework that no one else had to take but me. There were several years added on to every single phase of my PhD program that other people didn't have to go to because, well, I kind of sort of... Um, tried to take the shortcut and get it done before I was 30. And that was a huge mistake. All they did was keep adding things on. Now, I found out later on after the fact, because someone blurted this out in front of me after I graduated that um, people basically wanted to, yeah, sort of you know, get rid of me, that sort of thing. And the way that I got a defense date for my dissertation was I wrote to my advisor and said, do you realize that my younger sister had someone on her committee who was terminally ill getting chemo the day that, you know, she was doing her defense, they had to call in and he died a few months later. Not one of you is that busy, had a defense date a couple of days later. But here's the thing though, that took, it took 12 and a half years of abject misery to get to that point. So that's when I started thinking, you know what, I might actually have more patience than I give myself credit for. So I'm wondering, you know, just, um, well, between War and Peace, which I have another theory about why I read books like War and Peace So, but between War and Peace and also the misery of grad school and also how many times I have to like say, no, I'm not going to like, you know, I'm not going to get mad at this young person who has found every excuse in the book for not doing their assignments and basically has come to me yet again with some sob story about something ridiculous when they should have just gone on ahead and done their work because, well, it takes more effort to not do your work than to do your work. I don't know. Do we actually have more patience and kind of think that we don't?
0: Thank you. Um, good. Uh, good. Uh, maybe these are responses here. We're going to go to Vicki and then Ethan. Hi, Vicky. Got
5: it. Okay. Uh, this is going to go against what I'm going to say because I'm actually in my car going from one place to another. Uh, but um, huh. but I would, I wanted to agree with whoever it was who said number one about being present because I think that to me is the biggest part of the incentive to be patient mm-hmm. because you really here I am because you really want to you really want to value the uh, the experience you're having or the relationship, or whatever it is, and you want the person or persons that are on the other side to feel that way, that you're valuing it, and that you really are present for them. Um, The second thing I want to say is that, again, this is why I said about multitasking, but to be more reflective about how many things I take on, uh, about this whole notion of thinking you can multitask, um, about scheduling if you're lucky enough to get to a point in your life where you do have more flexibility with your time to take advantage of that so that you can be more present and the last thing i want to say is i think patience is one of the hardest values to cultivate Mm -hmm. for anybody um i think we're tried on we have we we are constantly being tried uh, on that one and it's why you know when i take a few minutes in the morning to say my morning prayers i have added patience at the beginning,
0: <laughs> because mm. I
5: think it's, it's something you have to work on, and you have to work to be conscious of.
0: Mm. Beautiful, beautiful, yeah, I love that, around scheduling, and how we think of our time, and around reinforcing this point of presence, um, and the work, as Vicky says, the work we need to do, and we might all think about the curricula, Right, it, we don't like right. Jews. Don't just make New Year's resolutions at Rosh Hashanah. We're like, oh, I'm going to be a nicer person. I, mean, I guess Jews do all kinds of things, right? But uh, but we actually need a curriculum. We like we know we need concrete, you know, goals and exercises and um, accountability to make sure that we're going to reach our goals in the coming year. And so, if patience is one of your goals, like what's your what's your um, what's your game plan? You know, how are you going to concretize it and do that work and um and grow in that presence. And sometimes we might even time ourselves. We might even do some experiments on how to grow in patience. do some things intentionally that we know requires patience and be hyper aware of what we're experiencing as we're trying to, to cultivate that. So great. Hi, Ethan.
6: Hi, Rabbi. Um, so my question is, is maybe actually centered around that concept of how do we become more patient? Um, and I think it's, it's interesting looking at the the etymology that Eddie provided that definitionally patient is one who sits in suffering. Uh, And that makes sense to me in terms of someone who breaks their leg and is sitting at a hospital waiting to be seen. That is someone who is in pain, in suffering, waiting with that suffering to be helped. Um, But my, my question is in, in terms of, uh, non-physical patients, uh, those that type of patients that we have with other people, might it be more helpful to reverse the definition of patients to mean uh, not sitting in suffering, but instead acknowledging the suffering on the other side of whatever we are patient for, and instead making patients more synonymous with empathy and understanding for the other side situation and not as much this sort of woe is me, I am suffering and I'm waiting to be helped definition of, of patience.
0: Very cool. Very cool, Ethan. Love that. Thank you. Right. So Ethan shares that one notion of connecting suffering to patients we shared was that we're suffering while we're waiting. Um, and while we have to be present at a time, we don't want to be present. Right, I don't, I don't want to hear someone, you know, talk for 20 minutes. I want to hear you talk for five minutes, and it's still going, it's still going. Or I'm watching this terrible movie because someone else wants to, and I'm still sitting through it. Right, but actually, this flipping it to the sense that we're being patient, um, and towards the suffering of another, and and that cultivating empathy um, in seeing what they need, um, which is which, which is really beautiful. And and I think that that was part of the Moshe story I shared earlier of kind of uh, that explanation around the suffering of the Israelites and his need to kind of, uh, you know, relate to their, uh, to their suffering. And so, yeah, Ethan, thank you for that. Um, I think that's really great. And sometimes um, for example, who is suffering more the teacher who has to give the lesson the 10th time or the parent has to give the 10th time or the student who is just embarrassed and humiliated and suffering through the 10th time of the lesson. As, as teachers and parents and grandparents, we might think of ourselves, ah, oh, I got to say it again, 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 this is so hard, right, but as the child, like, or or the, or the adult on the other end of it, I mean, it, it might be, the suffering might be much greater to be to be in that student role. I know uh, that certainly reflects true in my experience. So so Ethan, beautiful, thank you for that. Um, okay, well, let, let's see who I haven't heard from yet. Um, Cheryl or Eric or Eddie or Steve or Yehuda or Alex, before we circle back to others any of y'all want to weigh in?
7: Yeah, thank you so much, Rabbi. Um, something that I was sitting with um, was uh, something that I learned in therapy when um, they were talking to me about patience and, and healing, uh, that oftentimes that uh, we, we allow ourselves patience when we're hurt physically. Um, like if we break a bone um, in like in a mm-hmm. deep animalistic side of us, we know that we have to be patient for it to heal. Like we're not just gonna ex- like be angry that our broken arm isn't he- uh, healed, but when we suffer trauma and a, uh, a very traumatic uh, event, we uh, often do not have that patience for ourselves. We want ourselves to feel automatically okay, to be automatically okay. Uh, loss, uh, to give you an example, like a loss of a family member a loss of a relationship, Uh, we automatically think that we should be feeling okay. Um, And my therapist at that time talked to me about the importance of having patience for your mental health and for you to be able to sit through and allow your body to heal even when it's not something physical.
0: I love that, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. You're right because um, the physical is so objective that you can see the bone on, on the scan. You can see the break you can you can witness like that that um that that healing and the internal stuff is so intangible and invisible and um and we have this idea that we should just pull ourselves together be happy or, and and we need that patience there as well Eddie, I wonder if you ever saw this jPEG I saw this jPEG that says the way that people in regards to grief just one form of kind of suffering that that the uh, of course we all grieve differently but it said the way that people think of their grieving is it, um, is like this. You see this jar? You see this elephant? I've got a big elephant. Can you see that? I put a big elephant in there. They think in the grieving, the big elephant becomes a medium-sized elephant with time, if you can still see that. And then it becomes a small elephant with time. Um, it, the grieving gets smaller, but actually, Um, the way that um, this JPEG described it, in a way that really resonates for me is that the grieving stays the same size, right? Um, It actually doesn't just shrink. It doesn't just shrink. What actually changes is the size of the container it's sitting in. This big grief stays big grief, but it's in a little cup, it's in a bigger cup, it's in a bigger cup. And so that's to say that we grow, so we grow that external cup or size, but the grief still remains its own size. It doesn't really go away. Um, and of course we all grieve differently. So people have made have different experiences with that. So we might think, oh, I'm gonna be patient for this grief to get smaller. But actually what we might be being patient for is for our cup to kind of get larger even while it's holding that grief. So too with the trauma, the trauma on a biological level, not to mention psychological level, is you know physiological level is not gonna go away um perhaps but our coping with it um our ability to hold it and live with it may may evolve and grow um so eddie thank you for that hi cheryl i i see cheryl then i see steve
8: good morning um i had to step away for a moment so forgive me if i've repeated something that someone else said but what really rang true with me was this um the space between the reaction the space between something that you might react to, and then the reaction that really rang true with me, um, I find that if I allow for that that feeling in the pit of my stomach that I'm going to say something that I'm going to regret, you know, then I know that I have to just kind of stop and count to three or five or ten thousand or whatever it you know whatever it takes just to t- take a breath, take a breath. And then um, the other thing I wanted to say about being patient is something, I mean, it's kind of like a positive, in, in a way, it's a positive thing about being impatient for something good to happen. But then again, you have to stop yourself and say, well, if I'm anxious for, the anxious in a good way, you know, I'm anxious for this trip, or I'm anxious for this event, or I'm anxious for, you know, this thing to occur, you know, why rush things? Why, why you know, why, why rush things, you know, take it in, enjoy the fact, enjoy the, Um, Enjoy the anticipation as opposed to being impatient for it to happen.
0: Love that. Love that. Yes. Thank you for that. Um, And that's so powerful to think about. We're sometimes rushing stages in our lives, always wishing to be in a different stage. Like, I just want to, I mean, kids just want to be older, want to be taller. And then we just want to get through this degree and we want to get to this stage. And if I only have that, it's all, but just to learn how to like exist, as Cheryl's saying, like, with some contentment in each stage of uh, of a journey, and um, and to find enjoy good- where you are,
8: enjoy yeah. where you
0: are, right, great. And even when it's bad, of course, you can't say this to someone else, <laughs> but we can say this to ourselves. Even when it's bad, finding the blessings within that bad stage, like being bedridden, ill is really bad. But there are some unique life experiences we can have. Um, I, you know, to use kind of a an overused example when people talk about catching up on their Netflix, you know what I mean? Or not having to go do X, Y, and Z, which they normally do, right? There are, within the bad things we're suffering, there are some unique experiences that can happen even within those. Um, people talk about their great growth experiences that occur within some some negative things happening in their lives. And so, yeah, what Cheryl's saying, like figure out what we can uniquely enjoy in this stage of our, our journey. I love that. And, um, and then to your first point, Cheryl, around kind of that, stimulus and response this won't be for everyone here but here's one experiment you might try take some really cold ice cubes and hold it and squeeze it in your hand <laughs> and notice how many seconds it's not going to hurt you uh, you know i mean i'm not a doctor but it's not going to hurt you um you notice how many seconds it takes before like you really just want to drop it and then kind of sit with oh there's a stimulation in my hand it's cold it wants me to drop it how long can i hold this ice it's like this is not a it, intended just to be um you know, uh, inflict suffering, but actually to kind of see what it feels like to stay in that discomfort, knowing you'll be okay, but knowing that you need to kind of experience this stim- stimulus and this gap between stimulus and response. Um, That's one of kind of many. Okay, Steve, um, we're gonna go-
3: About the ice cube. Okay, don't do it for more than two minutes.
0: Okay, yes, two oh, minutes. you can go. <laughs> In the, in the books that offer that experiment, they exactly say two minutes. That's exactly right, yeah. So yeah, don't, don't try it. Don't do this for an hour. Or so, okay, hi, Steve.
9: Hi, um, a, a personal admission, my biggest point of impatience is at the left turn only light, which lasts <laughs> seven seconds, right. and two people in front of me move right away, but the person in front of me fails to see the light about to change what I learned is leave earlier. That's that's all you can do. <laughs> right. In my profession, I think um, patience is an imperative. It doesn't, and, and my profession is trading the stock market. And the, the l- lack of patience, and excuse me, I'm choking on a pretzel right now. Because <clears throat> okay, if? The, excuse me, the uh, lack of patience in trading the market does not preclude victory, but it absolutely invites disaster if you're wrong. Um, And it's something that I'm comfortable with now. I've learned that you, you can't make a trade every day or every month to be successful. But here's the other side of that it makes me less willing to take a chance. And, and having patience has prevented me from taking advantage of certain situations, which in retrospect proved to be very profitable. And I found in my business, trading the market, the ones who have succeeded are the few that have survived but have gone all in, all in and and, they're victorious. So I don't know how to really balance that, except to say, this is me. This is what I'm comfortable with. Being patient, looking for the odds. Trading the market is a business of probabilities, not certainties. Just trying to get most of the probabilities on your side and taking a chance. But Maybe I'm wandering away from what we're talking about. You're not but
0: wandering at all. You're, you're not wandering at all, Steve. That, that, that's really great. I mean, you've talked about how you're permanently bullish. And um, that it, if you know in the, long, in the long term that things will go up, then why suffer um, in the downstages in a sense of you hear people talking about cutting their philanthropic giving or people who are not going to take their trip or just watching the Dow and the NASDAQ every hour and all their emotions are tied to it um, as opposed to being patient for the long haul um, with the optimism that things will once again rise and not making foolish decisions when there's down periods. So I appreciate that your finance expertise, and by the way, am I getting correct what you said there? Did I state that correctly? Absolutely. Yeah. so, So, and, um, and that's true for a whole bunch of, of different, uh, you know, uh, business decisions. But in, in regards to the market, I think that's particularly helpful given your expertise. And you continue to play that role, in, you know, in my life of reminding of that optimism. And if you're an Israelite in slavery for hundreds of years and you know redemption will come, you just need to wait and be patient because it might not be your life. It might be your kids or your grandkids' life but you know that redemption from slavery in Egypt is going to come. And um, that's easier said than done, right? But um, uh, it only works with enterprises that we truly believe in that redemption ultimately um, or in that progress or in that bullish bullishness. So yes, yeah, Steve, thanks for that. Do you wanna add anything before we move on? I'm fine, thank you. Great, thank you so much. All right, Eric, you've been waiting so patiently, Eric still on mute there eric
10: sorry about that. thank you thank you so much for this has been fascinating and i think i'm gonna to have to go back and listen to this all over again a couple days from now uh i think this has been very fascinating to hear different perspectives and your information sharing about the different not all the w's of who what when where and why but i feel like that's interesting that i haven't grasped and started to understand is is the how um i thought there was one example where you know that you have the instructor teaching 400 times. And that's how to be patient. But I feel like there's, because we're so individualistic, there's lack of, there's, there's a lack of a, of a blueprint, a guide that in Jewish law or in commentary that kind of, that kind of can help those that are striving to, to be patient. And I know that's a sense of, of being an active being, but just the how to do it. And I know that's where we, there's been psychology and there's been, um, you know, ways that, that, that have been, that have been uh, advocated to people that want to be patient. But I haven't seen um, in Judaism, whether in, in law, custom, or in commentary, that's, that touches on the how. Like, what okay, great. That's to I, wh- wh- Why do you think that there hasn't been that that hasn't been touched? And I understand Judaism isn't an answer to everything, and only can go so far. But I'm, I'd like to get your thoughts on that.
0: Love it. I love it. Thank you so much because I think that's one of the most helpful things we can give each other is not just abstractions, but the tools on how to grow in these in these kindness practices. So I just want to offer three ideas in addition to a few I've shared and then open it up for others who want to share as well. The first is, and this is based on the Safer Chinoh, is biological conditioning. We are beings of routine. We are beings of conditioning. If you want to lift more weight in the gym, then you just got to push yourself and habituate yourself towards lifting a certain amount and breaking down those muscles so they build back bigger. And actually, so too in patients. there's a biological conditioning to practice. The more we practice the patience, the more we'll grow in it. So that's the first approach is like, is the the Aristotelian approach towards repetition. The more we repeat it, the more we train, the more we biologically condition ourselves, the more we can handle. That's the first approach. The second is kind of uh, the power of the mental, of mental imagination. Um, And here we might ask ourselves, when I am tested to be patient, that is beyond what I've conditioned myself for, what mental image will I um, bring up? And maybe we want to bring up a teacher of ours when we were young, who was extremely patient to us and remember that moment in our mind while we're sitting there. Maybe we want to have God in mind, so to speak, thinking of this kind of patience. Um, Maybe there's some image we want to have um, uh, of, of a light inside the person that we're being patient for. Um, a third approach, um, which I learned from the d- uh, developmental psychologist, is around at, um, at, who is actually taking a cognitive approach, a cognitive psychologist within the developmental camp, um, around actually identifying the barriers within us that prevent us from being patient in the moment we want to. Because it's in the, it's great to say, oh, I want to be patient, want to be patient. Oh, here's my moment. This is really hard. I want to be patient. But like they have to say, what is actually the thing within me that I need to uproot or 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 mitigate or or weaken in order to prevail? So let me give an example. Shmooly is standing in his office and Joe knocks on the door and Shmooly's got a call in two minutes. And Joe's like, can we talk for five minutes? And starts talking, and now it's 10 minutes, and now it's still going, and I'm late and I'm impatient. I don't know what to do. Yes, there's a conversation about boundaries and how I can put boundaries, but bracketing the boundaries question, there's also this moment of what am I doing? And I have to say to myself, what matters more, um, me or them, my time or their time? Right? And maybe I've concluded that I matter more than them. Maybe I've concluded that my time is more important than their time. Maybe I have to uproot some commitment in me which is making me impatient, right? There's a commitment that I need to challenge when I'm impatient, right? There's a commitment when, when the child is asking me for the seventh time for a brownie that is making me want to get agitated that I might need to uproot around some assumption I have on how a child should act, right? And so, um, yeah, so I wanna bring in that biological conditioning. I wanna bring in the visioning. I wanna bring in what code is trying to do, that if we keep repeating these virtues, that the power of language will kind of seek into the unconscious, ultimately. And then there's this idea of kind of uprooting the barrier, um, so to speak. So I don't know if any of that is is, um, is helpful. Yeah, and Lauren, thanks for that. Impatience is often ego-driven. I think that's right, that oftentimes um, we think we matter more. right? I'm waiting in the doctor's office, and, I'm, and, and, and it's 20 minutes late, and I'm mad because I matter so much. I should be in there right away. 20 minutes I'm waiting? Well, why are they running late? because the doctors are giving a little more time to other patients, because some other sick patient was using a walker and arrived 10 minutes late and was hard to get on time. Why are they late? I'm, is the only conclusion we have that they're having, having Jolly Ranchers, like laughing, talking about football, right? And that's probably not what's happening, right? And so sometimes I think as, as you said there, um, that in impatience is indeed ego driven. And we can be a little more patient if we have a little bit more empathy as Ethan said earlier. So let's see, I saw a few more folks raise their hands before we circle back to folks um actually maybe not so who wants to jump back in okay i saw Agalea with a hand up okay yes
3: all right so um talking about the just speaking to how to be more patient okay um the idea of the um impatience being ego-driven um It's interesting because I was just explaining some of this to, you know, one of my world soap classes though, but long story short though, um, a how to not be impatient might actually in its own way, reinforce patience because impatience, because of the fact that you've got in your mind that you are going to be impatient. Now I know in my case, okay, just like throwing this out there, it was a perception that I'm an impatient person that was kind of fueling the impatience in general. So if I had actually let myself think of myself as, oh, I'm patient enough to outlast, you know, whatever, you know, the people at this institution are throwing at me, I might not have actually been nearly as upset about it. However, it was a perception in my mind that I didn't have patience and I need to learn how to have patience that reinforced the impatience, if that makes sense. So I'm not exactly sure when it comes to, is there a how-to manual? If the how-to manual would actually end up being helpful.
0: Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Totally, totally. And I <laughs> love that you brought in identity. I think that's so helpful because sometimes we tell ourselves we're a person and that reinforces it. I think that's so helpful. And um, and sometimes when we slip, we go, oh, actually I am that person, right? Um, Right. The person who is an alcoholic, but has had 10 years of sobriety and then has a drink, has two ways to think about that drink they had. They can say, oh, I'm the exact same person I was 10 years ago. I didn't change at all. Or they can say I slipped and had a drink. Right. So, too, someone who's been really patient all day and then at eight o'clock gets really impatient and raises their voice at someone and say, oh, I'm just that impatient person, as opposed to saying, whoa, whoa. All day I was really patient. Like I'm, I'm a patient person who slipped, right? So we don't always have to reinforce negative identities when we slip. So thank you, Aglaia, for the, for sharing that, um, uh, for that point. Yes. Who else wants to jump in a oh, last comment from someone? Anyone have a last comment? Okay. So good. So with that, um, we um, this is all all so much easier said than done, as always. Um, that we all have so much growth, and I think that's one of the most exciting sides of Judaism is that we are so growth-oriented, so much shuva-oriented, shuva, not as a, um, uh, have to be viewed as a negative thing, but as an exciting thing, that we are all finished, unfinished products looking to become more godly, looking to become more patient and kind and the like. We can continue to learn tools from each other and support each other on how to continue to grow in all this. And with that, just a reminder that since next Tuesday is the second day of Rosh Hashanah, we know some of y'all only celebrate or observe one day, um, and some of us um, observe two days. And so we are here observing the second day as well. So we will miss you next uh, Tuesday. Um, And then we will be back the following Tuesday, even though Yom Kippur is that night. Um, We understand if anyone is in Yom Kippur prep and um, can't join that morning. And then we'll be off the next two. Tuesdays for Sukkot and for Shemini Yatseret or Simchat Torah uh, within Shemini Atzeret. and then we'll be back back to usual um, but with that thank you all so much and wishing everyone a Shana Tova, a year of good health and strength and patience and joy in the patience and all good things. Many
9: blessings and see you in the new year.